Comunidad, welcome back to Our Cultura, a Radio Teco podcast of the legacy San Francisco-based community bilingual Latino newspaper, El Tecolote. My name is Alexis Terrazas, editor-in-chief, and in a few moments, we will introduce episode four of our new series for the month of May, Afro-Latinx Soundscapes. Afro-Latinx Soundscapes is a series created by SF State Ethnic Studies Assistant Professor Barbara Abaria Rasach and SF State students Anaya Jones and Jasmine Guadalupe Figueroa Casillas. In this next episode, Barbara, Anaya, and Jasmine speak with Dr. Marie Nubia Feliciano, an Afro-Boricua ethnic studies professor at Cal State Fullerton. Nubia Feliciano talks about growing up on the eastern Puerto Rican island of Culebra, her own journey in academia, and the importance of an ethnic studies education, and how that can be a vehicle for self-discovery. This is episode four. Thank you for listening to Afro-Latinx Soundscapes podcast. Every Sunday on May 22nd, you will be listening to a new episode of AS with Anaya, Jazz, and Barbara. If you're missing one of them, check them out on Spotify under Our Cultura podcast. Dr. Marinubia Feliciano earned a bachelor degree in social sciences with a minor emphasis in cognitive psychology. She also has a master in counseling and a PhD in education. She is currently an adjunct professor at UC Irvine. Welcome to our Latinx podcast, Dr. Marie. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me here today. So, Professor Marie, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born and raised. Well, I actually was born in, in Vieques and grew up in Culebra, and that's most most of the history of most people that are born on, uh, that live in Culebra, because there's no hospital in Culebra, and so uh, my mother had to go to Vieques, where the, where the military bases were, and, and I was born there. She was born there, my brother was born there. Uh, so I was born there, and then I grew up in Culebra and in Southern California in Carson. Oh, okay, I love that. I I didn't know and like about Vieques and Culebra and like that whole situation. <laughs> um, was that the whole? Was that like the circumstance for all of your siblings, or just for you? Uh, my two older sisters actually were born in Bayshores, Long Island, <laughs> where my mother was living at the <laughs> time. <laughs> so that's where they were born uh but then she moved back uh to to Vieques uh, for for work and for and to be closer to family uh and that's where my brother and I I I am my brother because I'm older uh were born and you know we left mostly because I was the sickest of the four and I would be I was allergic to mosquitoes and I had febrile seizures, which are seizures that are caused by fever spikes. If you get like an ear infection or a cold, uh, your fever spikes. And so I would get 104 uh, degree fevers. Uh, and they would, since there's no hospitals and no clinics, I would have to be packed in ice uh, in a little, my, in my little uh, cloth diaper at the time, in a little tub of ice water to lower my temperature. And uh, the asthma was really bad. And so there was a lot of steam and water. Uh, we didn't have any running water or electricity, so all of that needed to be done by hand. And 
I opened flames and things like that, heating up the water and things. Uh, and so after a while, I just, and I was allergic to mosquito bites. So <laughs> those were really bad. I would get huge welts, like the half, uh, you know, relatively speaking for my size, they were, they look like about the size of a half of a tennis ball. When I would get bitten, that's how big the welt would be. It would, you know, it would keep me from walking well, the muscle, the muscle functions. And so after a while, my mom was like, we got to go. Otherwise, Marie's going to die here. <laughs> So she was able to get a, a base transfer because she was she worked as a civilian in the military. And so she looked through their job boards and found a job uh, that would move her to the Long Beach Naval Base. And so she came first and then uh, we came after and you know, the asthma, it, it got better. It really got better. The mosquitoes were no longer an issue. And um, for the benefit of the audience, Vieques is an island a municipality of the Puerto Rican archipelago. Some people say that Vieques is the colony of the colony, Puerto Rico, making reference to the vulnerability under which their residents survive on a daily basis. Vieques residents have been fighting against impoverishment and the lack of transportation services, food, and other basic resources. So there's no hospital in Vieques nowadays. Um, so people can born in Vieques and, and, and mothers can birth their, their babies in Vieques and they have to go to say to, to Fajardo is the closest uh, place with a hospital uh, for, for them. And also there's a high rate of people with cancer in Vieques and also in Culebra. And Culebra nowadays is like a, a Puerto Rico for sale situation because there's a lot of people uh, outsiders buying uh, lands in, in Culebra. So, uh, the, Dr. Marie, you are, you are telling us about the, the situation where you were born, but still uh, the, the same situation. And the U.S. Navy was in Vieques, first in, in Culebra, and then in Vieques from 1941 until 2001. And after the assassination of a local civil guard, David Sanes, and civil disobedience, um, a lot of movement of, of uh, the society in Puerto Rico uh, from all over the nation and, and the diaspora, uh, they ended the, 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 the use of uh, military things they were doing over, uh, over there. And we encourage the audience to learn more about Vieques beyond a touristic point of view. Of course, Vieques has beautiful beaches, yeah. but also people living under extreme difficulties due to systemic racism and racialization as non-white Puerto Ricans. Yeah, the, the only hospital in Vieques actually shut down because of uh, it was devastated by Hurricane Maria and it hasn't opened yet. And this was in 2017, uh, in September, and it hasn't opened yet. It hasn't been renovated. And so, yes, uh, pregnant people have to get on a, on a ferry and go into the bigger island, the big island of Puerto Rico, to Pajarado, to, to one of the local hospitals to have the baby. So, yeah. And Vieques was used as, a, as target practice by the military. And because of unexploded munitions and, um, you know, all military bases, once they're closed, they're super fun sites. So anywhere in the United States, if the military base closes, it becomes a super fun site because of the level of toxins in the environment there. And uh, they need to clean, it needs to be clean. They need to scrape off a certain number of feet of dirt and haul that away and all of those types of things. And um, I always thought cancer ran in my family and it didn't. It was because we, it's where we lived. 
So yeah, it, it, my my family's really been marked by uh, the historical devastation of both Vieques and Culebra. That's that's you know really I think it speaks to like society and how how much lack of care goes into to different people and in cities whether they're small or big or I think that seems to be like a pretty big seems to be a common theme for people in Puerto Rico that's unfortunately they don't get the care and the resources they deserve um so you kind of told us a little bit about living in Vieques and Culebra and then could you explain a little bit more about moving um uh to New York and then finally to California and then maybe like how old were you when you had moved and like in where for how long did you live in these places Oh, there was a bit of a pit stop in New York. We were visiting my grandmother's uh, sister. Uh, and so we were there probably two weeks uh, on our way to Southern California. And so um, it was 1976, believe it or not. I was seven. I had just almost turned seven. It was, I, turned, uh, I was born June 30, so smack in the middle of the year. And um, yeah, we moved. My mother went first. Uh, before we ever got on the plane with my grandmother and uh, to when she got the job she was a, she came in to sort of scout the area out to see where she can move us because by that time she was a widow and so she um, she was able to find an apartment that was across the street from the elementary school and the high school I mean literally the high school and the elementary school were just across the street from each other and so she was able to find an apartment complex that was right there uh, across the street from both. And uh, so the only child she needed to drive was my second oldest sister to middle school. So uh, it was very well positioned. And then she probably had a 30 minute drive into Long Beach. So she was able to find a good place for us to, to settle in. And, you know, we, I grew up in Southern California. It was a lot, and I'm I'm really glad. <laughs> I'm really glad. Like I said, if we would have stayed in Puerto Rico, I probably would not have survived childhood because I came here, uh, being from you know living in a rural environment. You know, my job was to feed the pigs in the backyard, so we had a pigsty back there, and it felt it's that it felt and and uh, how I remembered it, it was very idyllic. My brother and I. Um, we were we felt safe, and my all of our siblings. There was no running water, or electricity, but we made do. So for children, it was fine, but for the adult, it was a hard it was a hard life to live. So I understand that now, having my own children. Um, and so leaving took. She probably would we wouldn't have left if my mother was not a civil servant, because that allowed her to work through the civil service job registry to move us and then save money and move us here and have a job and a place to live. So it was, it, it, that's really the only way we were able to do it. Uh, I came here, like I said, I came here and I was sickly and, and I had a tapeworm, which wasn't killing me, but it was really common <laughs> given where you live in a rural, a rural existence. Um, and so, you know, I just got some medicine and that was fine. I mean, it wasn't, no, it wasn't that big of a deal, but <laughs> I oftentimes when I tell people, it's like, a tapeworm? It's like, well, you just, you have to understand where I was, <laughs> the times in which I lived. Uh, again, it was, it was something that uh, I, I was, I, I healed from and I'm, I'm fine with, I never got rid of the asthma that stayed with me, despite the best efforts of my pediatric pulmonologist, uh, but it, I've been able to flourish 
since then. And so, you know, we've been, we made it through and I flourished in school and um, I personally have never returned because of, of either I was at work or I was at school or the finances weren't there. So I personally never returned. My second oldest sister has traveled three times and my mom has gone a couple times back to, to Vieques to, and, and Culebra to visit family. But I hope so, to do so. And it's in, it's in the five-year plan um, to see how my beautiful little island is doing. Um, so I, when I was born, the island only had about 700 inhabitants. And as of the 2020 census, there was about 1,800 people living there now. So it's still small. It fared pretty well during the COVID pandemic, actually. There was only six recorded cases and no deaths. So, you know, it's probably due to the remote and rural <laughs> existence, but you know, it stayed safe. And uh, even during Hurricane Maria, I would check in with my family and like, well, you know, estamos bien. It's nothing, you know, we're fine. There's, you know, it's, it's nothing more than what we've endured in the past. And so, you know, there's usually not reliable electricity and reliable water and there still wasn't. So, yeah. So I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, mm -hmm. When was the first time you realized that you were black? In college. <laughs> well, my awareness, but when I was small, when I first, um, my mother had to fight for me to be in first grade because of, although I was, were, I was operating at or above grade level for my age, I was seven, so I should be in the first grade. And uh, they wanted to put me in kindergarten because I didn't, I didn't have the mastery of English. And so she pushed and pushed and pushed and she got me in first grade with an ESL teacher. And that's what I needed. Um, but it was real quick when I realized that you know, people were yelling at me, the kids were yelling at me they were expecting me to speak English because I was in their eyes. I was African-American and all African-Americans speak English. Right. And I didn't. And so there was a lot of bullying. I distinctly remember being pushed into the chain of fences and being kicked and all of that. Um, but the school teachers were the ones that really uh, provided me a, a safe place to get along. Um, my grade teacher, my grade classroom teachers, worked with my ESL teachers. So in conference, I, they would check on my English mastery and the ESL teacher would make sure that I was on, you know, I was doing the work because it was clear. I knew my multiplications to 12. I could cursive write. I knew all my letters, all my colors. I mean, all knew all the states. I mean, that's a lot for a first grader. So they knew the only thing that Marie had to do was master English. And so they gave me the time to do that. And it, I had an ESL teacher till I was in the fourth grade. And, they, the, and it was clear to the ESL teacher and my classroom teacher that it wasn't that Marie didn't want to speak in English in class. It's because the out-of-class environment with her peers was making it hard for her to have an identity of, of who she was. And so just through school, and then I had another critical experience uh, in college where I walked into the cross-cultural center uh, at my college, at my university, my four-year, and I walked in right up to the Latino Students Organization room and I asked when their next meeting was. And she, she said that, well, it's during this time, but the Black Student Organization is down the hall. You may want to talk to them. And it's like, uh, but I want to know about the Latino students <laughs> I'm from Puerto Rico. She goes, oh, oh, oh. And then I went and I visited and um, I got a lot of questions when I went to the meeting about, you know, checks on my identity 
that through my doctoral research, I've, I coined cultural litmus tests. So do you dance? Were you born there? Are you full? Do you speak Spanish? Do you cook? Do you know this musical artist? And it just, all these things. And then when I would flip the script and ask them similar questions, they would go, oh no, I was born here. My parents never bothered to, they didn't think it was important for me to learn Spanish. So I don't know it. And it's like, okay. So you go through it with, to me, but it wasn't, it, you lay claim to an identity that I also have, but you feel comfortable putting me through this Q&A to validate that for yourself. So that was the, that was the other one. And then it was in my master's program, my counseling program, uh, I went back and forth with the person who ended up being my dissertation, my thesis chair. <laughs> and she says, Marie, you're black. I said, I'm not, I'm Puerto Rican. It's like, but no, you're black. It's like, but I'm not, I'm Puerto Rican. And we went back and forth. And I don't know if she knew what words to use to help me understand, but I, but it was later on in my doctoral work, looking at Afro-Latinas uh, for my proposal, that I realized what I was trying, what we were trying to figure out was that I am black, part of the black diaspora. I am not African-American. And I think my, what was happening is that my, my turned out to be my thesis chair was using the words black and African-American synonymously. And I saw them as differently. And I, you know, I couldn't tell her that and she couldn't get that from me. And so I think we were talking past each other, but I, and that's, I think the, that awareness came through all those critical experiences that when did I realize I was black? I think when I had to figure out what that meant, you know, in, in a Puerto Rican cultural context. And that started happening in college uh, right away. You know, my first realization was in elementary school that all these kids were screaming at me. It's like, why doesn't this black girl talk English? All black kids talk English. Like, and after a while I started to understand and I chose not to speak English. And that's why it, it was until fourth grade when I started speaking English in class. I can relate to your experience of like the college diversity program. Because when I first showed up, if you look at my full name, you're like, oh, Latino, for sure. No question about it. And then I showed up and they're like, oh, you must have gotten into the wrong one. The program's actually over there. And they set me up with that counselor and I didn't know. And I sat down and I was like, I think I'm in the wrong program right now. <laughs> like, I don't think I'm supposed to be here right now. Um, and they ended up just like unknowingly putting me in both po programs. So I got to go to both events. And in each event, it was like, when I would go to the Black Students event, it was more of like, proving how black I was and then me having to be like I know my parents don't visibly look black but I swear like it's in me I promise and then going to the Latino program and then them questioning me being like where's your Spanish then like speak it right now say something and I'm like I don't gotta do that to prove it to you I don't and then it was just like a, it's like what I call a cultural limbo where it's like, I don't know where I really belong, but I'm somewhere like, I'm, I swear I belong with you guys, but I don't know how. Exactly. And that is really true. It's, we do have, you know, we can pass into the African-American community uh, and then we can just stand there because we don't know the codes of conduct. We don't have, that's not the history that we grew up knowing the sayings, the references, like that, you know, you're not invited to the picnic. 
That is a, a quintessential African-American reference that I had to learn what that meant, right? Because <laughs> I had no idea. So it really is very much like uh, Barack Obama wrote in his book. He had to learn to be Black in the United States. And so, and what that meant is that learning to be African-American um, because we're part of the Black diaspora, obviously. And it isn't something we're denying, but what we're denying is membership into the African-American community. We are not African-American. Uh, we are a, a population within the Latino community uh, that has all the rights and privileges that that cultural group bestows on all of its members. But because we don't fit the either the stereotype or the archetype or the convention, whatever word you want to use, uh, we stand out and we're questioned. Uh, it's like we have to, they, they're checking our authenticity. Uh, that's why I use that scientific term of cultural litmus test. Those are those little pieces of paper that you put into a liquid to see what's in it. And the coloring changes tells you what is inside. And that's what these people were doing. They were checking to see what was inside of us to, so that they can verify to themselves that we belonged. And it's like, who died and made you a gatekeeper? I mean, so whatever. So it, it, it is a strange dynamic um, coming into the ownership of our membership in the Black diaspora. It takes a different path when you're an Afro-Latina. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> Jazz, I like what you brought up about the cultural limbo. I always say like now that like that was my identity crisis and I just didn't realize it till I got older that I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and then also, doctor, I like how you brought up um, uh, the use of African-American and the use of, of Black and how they uh, most often people use them synonymously. But I think, again, it's not something that you realize till you get older that Black and African-American don't mean the same thing. And, you know, when you're coming from different places, you know, you're often, it's like everybody's just black. And, and again, that goes to people thinking that being black just looks like one thing. And it's this whole kind of, it's a really unfortunate kind of thought process because, you know, black is not just one thing, but everybody here assumes that if you're, you know, everybody, every single person here who's black is African-American and that's just not the case. It's good to, you know, bring that, you know, bring that to the forefront to make sure people are using you know, these terms, you know, correctly. Um, and so that said, how would you identify yourself in terms of ethnicity and race? Uh, I'm Afro-Roriqua, for sure. Yeah. And uh, that is because I'm here in the United States. These ra the racial matrix of the United States quickly came on top of my family. Like, uh, I'm, I'm from a very typical café con leche family in Puerto Rico. My mom is this white passing um, indigenous Italian person. And then my dad is an indigenous black African person. And then there's me and my, my two older sisters. One can pass for and was mis, misidentified often or confused for Julia Roberts in her 20s. And she would fly around in the airport. Exact. Exact. Now she looks like a middle-aged Julia Roberts, but you know, <laughs> that's exactly what she would look like. Uh, and then my second oldest sister actually is an absolute twin for Maria Ferreira from Nicaragua. She did Ugly Betty and Journey of the Traveling Pants and all those exact copy. And then there's me. And then my brother, he kind of looks South 
eat South Asian Indian, sort of different shades of latte. Very common in Puerto Rico, very common. Here, uh, it isn't. And so we've had a lot of uh, interesting run-ins and people not believing, like when my brother and I were in the same school, that's your brother. Or when my sister and I were in the same high school, because we're, we're a few years apart, but we're at some point I was in ninth grade and she was in 12th grade. And it's like, that's your sister? It's like, yeah. I mean, look. <laughs> you want me to just open your eyes and look. I mean, don't just look at first glance and go, oh, you don't look alike. Um, of course we do. We all look like our mother. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> you just have to look at us. And then therefore we look like each other. But if you're going to be distracted by all the other things, you're not actually seeing us. You're using the external or you know, the, the distractors to f- create a picture, an image in your mind that does not make me match my siblings. And that's on you. That really isn't on me. But we had a good time uh, fooling people usually, especially also speaking Spanish. That's the other thing. There were so few Puerto Ricans in the area uh, that... Um, when we did speak Spanish, it's like, what kind of Spanish is that? <laughs> it's like, it's from Puerto Rico. And then it's like, where's that? It's like, oh. <laughs> so it, that, was, that was also problematic. And we sometimes still get that uh, from people. It's like, where's Puerto Rico? Where, where's Vieques or where's Culebra? And it's like, just crack a book. Look at a map. <laughs> um, so it is, it's, it's, it is an experience that uh, is unique. And I think in speaking with other folks, um, I do see that uh, sometimes white Latinos run into this problem. They're not believed, especially if they're like super, super pale with like the reddish hair and the, you know, the, the, the markings of, of ex- not extreme, but, you know, the whiteness that there's no clear idea that they're mixed in any way. In, in, the, in the observer size. Um, and Asian Latinos, they're the other group that really struggle with, you know, soy boricua. Si, mi, mis abuelos eran, eran de China o de Japón o de las Filipinas, pero yo soy boricua. And, but they still very much present to the world um, of Asian descent. And so they have trouble um, making, helping people, uh, having people believe them. Um, can you share with us how you navigate being Afro-Latina in California and how you navigate being Afro-Latina uh, scholar in academia and how that like shifts your viewpoints? Uh, in Southern California, Mexico is definitely a backdrop. Like if I had to explain what pasteles were, no, they're not cakes. They're kind of like Puerto Rican tamales, except... <laughs> It's not masa corn-based mix. It's a root vegetable mix. And no, we don't use corn husks. We use banana leaves. And no, we don't steam them. We wrap them and we boil them. So at least I get people to get a sense of what I'm talking about. And then I talk them through the exception. Uh, the type of Spanish, like I mentioned before, is very is, is a little bit different. Uh, uh, the sing song, the, the rhythm of the language is a little bit different as well. Um, like the word for gossip is one of my favorite words. And uh, I ran into another, a couple of Puerto Rican students in my classes and they like this word too, bochinchera. I mean, that's like a substantial word, right? <laughs> Whereas in, in Mexican Spanish, it's chisme. And that's kind of like, I don't know, it just doesn't do it for me. 
<laughs> so I've taught all of my the students of Mexican descent that speak Spanish in my class. It's just like I want you to practice saying the word bochinchera, and you'll understand why. <laughs> Me and your classmate really enjoy saying that more than chisme. So uh, that's how I sort of navigate um, my space in the classroom. As a scholar, I have found, um, like I did as an undergrad, I found that my professors were A-OK. Uh, it was the, their children, they, their, their, their figurative children, meaning that my peers in college who hadn't left, who hadn't traveled, <laughs> they were the ones that were having trouble making sense of me. But the professors, they have traveled. They've had you know, peer interactions. They've written. I've had, I have one really good professor who's still a mentor who's an ethnomusicologist from Cuba. He's been everywhere. He said, of course, of course, Black people speak Spanish. Of course, there are Black people in the Americas. So the professors were like, no problem. Marie's una boricua. He habla español así. You know, that, no problem. But it was, it was my peers that were having trouble finding where I fit in their uh, very short exposure to the diversity within the Latino community. Um, but, and so I'm encountering that now in my, in my uh, work at Cal State Fullerton primarily, uh, I was able to secure um, a pretty uh, substantial amount of course teaching at Cal State Fullerton. And I'll, it, I'll be going virtually, uh, virtually in the sense that, you know, it's virtually full-time, not online, but virtually full-time. It isn't like security of employment, but I'll be full-time across two semesters, at, exclusively at Cal State Fullerton, teaching ethnic studies. And I have found that the ethnic studies department and the Chicano, Chicana studies program within that uh, has been incredibly supportive. They understand the need to center the Black Latino voice, experience, um, everything. And so they have welcomed me as a colleague. They have sponsored a research project that I have. I've been able to, uh, you know, I'm going to be proposing a, uh, a class on Afro-Latinidad. I'm going to hopefully put the proposal together and submit it for approval so that it's not for this academic year, but the following it takes about a year. Uh, I'm going to try to embed a, uh, an education abroad experience to Puerto Rico within that class. And so there's, but all of that is possible because the department has been supportive. And so I, so far, um, my scholarly peers have been, I mean, they've, they've welcomed me. So education makes a huge difference and exposure makes a huge difference uh, in broadening the understanding of the within group difference. And they absolutely own and understand that there needs to be a conversation about anti-blackness within the Latino community. And so, you know, they, they understand they are, there are white Latinos and black Latinos and indigenous Latinos and Asian Latinos. So there's language being used by everybody acknowledging the within group difference and how that those different positions that we have uh, and because of how we present to the world really does impact how we are Latinos. And so I found academia where I'm at at Cal State Fullerton an incredibly welcoming place. That's good. I'm so glad yeah. you had a positive experience at least like with your professors and such because I know that like having at least like such a 
constant presence, like a teacher or professor not accept you would be really difficult and like wanting to pursue higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, can you like describe any noticeable differences in the way Afro Latinidad is treated in the various places that you take up space? So academia and the various places you've lived and just like everyday life. Uh, within school, uh, I, the students are very receptive. I mean, they, and I have been given permission just by my peer, mere presence of other students who present as African-Americans to say, actually though, I'm, I'm Panamanian or I'm Blacksican, or, you know, all of a sudden, because they have an Afro-Boricua teacher, they're like, that's right, we're here. <laughs> so I find that to be a really nice uh, unintended outcome. And we have, and I use myself a lot in class and speaking about ethnic studies to bring about you know, to talk about conversations of difference and how, like I said, I can walk into an African-American space, but then I can just, I, I literally will have to wait for somebody to tell me what to do because I don't know the codes of conduct. But then I walk into a Latino space and I know what to do and where to go, but people are looking at me like, what is she doing here? Because visually I don't belong there, but I know what to do when I'm there. And so I bring up those conversations. Um, a big thing also is language as many of us have experienced that we get checked on that as if that's like the biggest uh, pass that we need to do in order to gain access to the culture that we were born into. Uh, The students of all cultural groups say that they are ridiculed both within and outside their families, but within their cultural group because they either don't know Spanish or or they're sort of don't know it very well. and it was because of the choice of their parents to not pass on that legacy that they now are stuck with living with the consequences of that because you know they're elders. I mean, they, they get ridiculed within the family. And many of them have said, this has really impacted me personally and emotionally and psychologically. So it has a, a negative impact, uh, the language um, check on these students. And so I talked to them about that. And I, under, and I tell them that there's, there's a, a, a pero-like uh, video about how second and third generation um, relationship with the Spanish language uh, varies. And it should, because after a while, you sort of become a sample of the original. I mean, that's the best way I could, you know, how you, how you are and how you sound reminds people of your parents or reminds people of your grandparents. So it's kind of like a, a music sample. And it happens to all cultural groups, whether they are from the African continent or the Americas or Europe or the Asian uh, part of the, of the continent. And it happens. It happens. And so that's, that's, I tell them, you just have to be okay with that. Learning a language is still accessible to you forever. So you have that. That's not something anybody can take away from you. The comprehend, we have comp- levels, different levels of comprehension to the language. And so some of us can speak it very well and some of us can understand it very well. And some of us can read it and write it very well, but it's at varying levels. But that goes for English too. 
some of us can speak really well, but they struggle writing. And, you know, <laughs> and sometimes we have to hear things a few times before we actually get what we're, what we're what's being spoken to us. So it's all language works that way. And so to say you're fluent, you have to then describe what do you mean by that? Is it, is it the conversational? Can you, trans, can you transcribe in Spanish? Can you translate in the moment when you hear like, can you translate into Spanish? Can you write an academic paper in Spanish? Can you, all of these things. And those, those get at the various levels of uh, uh, expertise that you have in that language. But that goes for English too, right? <laughs> That's why we have a writing center on most college campuses, because all of us, you know, most of us can speak English really, really well. But I get you to write a two page paper. It's like, what? <laughs> what is with all the commas? And where's the verb? And you know, so I it, it so I have these conversations out loud in the classroom with the students that your mastery of Spanish is now up to you. You now need to make the decision if you want to take that on as a personal a personal endeavor to to own that part of your culture but that doesn't mean that not having it keeps you from owning all of it you know there's just some things you'll need some translation on okay big whoop but that doesn't <laughs> mean anything else that does that's not the thing that should keep you from owning or taking ownership of a culture that you were born into so I try to do that in the classroom as much as I can, you know, out and about. It's funny when I hear people speak Spanish and I, you know, it's all over my face. I try not to, <laughs> and with the mask, and you can see it in my eye, if it, eye expressions. Uh, and then they catch on. It's like, ¿Tú me entendiste? It's like, sí, <laughs> soy de Puerto Rico. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, okay. Then they, they, they change a little bit or they laugh or, you know, or they bring me into the conversation depending on how they are. Um, but I find that in my son, because my partner's Dutch, and so our, our, my children are very much latte in that sense, he plays soccer. And uh, in, even in this area in Southern California, uh, there's a, especially in this area in Southern California, there's a lot of Latinos that play soccer. And so he's on a, a club team and, and he plays for the high school team. And every once in a while, he's defending somebody because he's center mid and somebody says something in Spanish and then he responds back and they don't expect him to. So sometimes those people literally stop what they're doing because he's, he's given them such a shock and then he steals the ball. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. So it's like a, this little hidden superpower. Uh, <laughs> so it is a, it, language can do that. Um, uh, I've had very few people uh, say anything negative about, about it. Um, I hear, I do check people when they do say things negatively about Spanish speaking people or, or, or Latinos in general, um, especially if, you know, I say, well, I'm Latino. Is this something that applies to me? And uh, thinking that they're as progressive as they are, you know, uh, it's like, oh, well, you know, I didn't mean that. Okay. So, so it does impact. Uh, and language is a big, is, is a central issue for sure, both in the classroom and outside of it. I like what you said about language and how, you know, and I've, or also how you mentioned that like English and how people aren't always like proficient in English in the ways we think we are, uh, because I guess that's not really something you would think of only, you know, you would think of Spanish that way, but some people, you know, just English isn't 
they're great at speaking it perhaps, but writing, writing the paper is, you know, really, really difficult. So I thought that was really, really a yeah. really good way to look at language and the way we kind of have to dissect and try to learn language. Yeah. And e- so even those have- who only speak English, mm-hmm. even those who only speak English, you realize that this is, this is a reality in this, in any language, including the only one, you know, so don't, <laughs> don't, don't rag on the folks who also speak okay. another language that, that they're having trouble. It's like, uh, let me look at the paper, your paper once again. <laughs> I'll let you know that you're also having trouble with the only one you know. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a great way think, to look um, at it. Sorry. Um, it makes me think of like when I was in elementary school in like the first grade. When I'm at home, my mom only speaks to me in Spanish. So, I would go to school and I'd be like, oh my God, what is this called? Oh my God, what is this called? What is it in English? And I had like, like a hair tie. I didn't know what a hair tie was until like the seventh grade. Like I was like, oh, bolita, like the thing to put my hair in a little tail with. Like, and like I was in ESL in the first grade, but like English is my first language. So it was like, and even now I'm like, oh my God, like, what do I say? Like, I don't, and now it's like, I've been speaking English for so long that I'm like, oh my God, now how do I translate this back into Spanish? Because like now at my new job, I have to talk to the cook solely in Spanish. And I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot. How did I forget my language? Um, And it's just like language is so tricky in that way where it's like I can understand it perfectly. I can understand both languages. Perfect. Speaking it so hard. Both of them. I I can't do either. (laughs) Yeah. And that is that is really true. It really I, I even still. Like the other day, and I still have, I have to be very intentional when I, when I talk about survival of the fittest. Uh, uh, and the, I say, you know, it really doesn't have anything, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with strength. It has to do with your ability to adapt as an organism. And so I always reference that the, the salinization of the oceans uh, has brought about the, the proliferation of jellyfish. And that word, I have to consciously move to the front because the only word that ever comes to mind is medusa, which is the Spanish word for it. And so you will always have these little, these little brain hiccups in the language uh, that you will only know one word in a language. Cause, and that's the thing, I, your mom was really good about doing that. I speak Spanish only to the kids. And if they try to speak English once they started in elementary school that that was the case I would say ay mijo te oigo pero no te entiendo pobrecito exactly exactly. (laughs) then look at that it just like a switch and then they speak Spanish so it's always in there and I try to make sure I reinforce it and uh now they're until they're able to take it at school because we don't have a bilingual education program in the elementary school so it was really on me to maintain the language in their mind and in their heart uh, so that when they did take it through formal instruction, they could get that framework in to, to put all those pieces together. Uh, and now they're fluent. Mira, todo ese trabajo. No, when I was younger, it was more of like my mom trying to learn English. So I would only speak to her in English and she would only respond to me in Spanish. So that's why I can understand so well, but like speaking it and in high school, when you forced to take like Spanish one, Spanish two, I'd be like, oh, I I know this and I would do well, but I I didn't know how to write or like the proper forms of Spanish. I'm like, I don't like, it's so complicated. Yeah. And then words like the kids only or only knew at the time 
one word for bus, which was guagua. And then they go to school and, you know, the teacher's like, so does anybody know the word? Because they're native speakers one and they do a review. It's like, does anybody know the word for bus? And then my son raises his hand and says, guagua. And the teacher's like, and then, of course, the kids are like, what the heck is that? You know? <laughs> it's autobus. Oh, I don't even know what it is. But he's like, oh, I'm Puerto Rican. And then the teacher's like, oh, okay. Because most Spanish language teachers have traveled a little bit and they know a little few different dialects. And so, yeah, so that both my children are known as the, the Puerto Rican Spanish speakers in their native Spanish speaker class. I think it's also interesting about language, given that, you know, you're, you're from Puerto Rico and you're in Southern California. So there's a lot of Mexican people. And of course, you know, the Mexican way of speaking Spanish is different than the Puerto Rican. So I think, you know, there's a lot of different, and, you know, just because, you know, the Americanized version of everything and how American people are very, you know, a little, we don't quite have it taken all the way. We're not, you know, always very, you know, accepting of other things. Um, so I, I think it's interesting when you're considering, you know, somebody from Puerto Rico who speaks a different Spanish, they already, you know, Americans already are, are difficult to, it's difficult for us to comprehend Spanish at all. But then they're like, there's different kinds of Spanish. And, and it's like, you know, it's this whole groundbreaking <laughs> kind of concept at that point. They have no idea. Right. And it is that uh, for so many students, language is so inextricably linked to their identity um, because it even came up with a young woman who's Egyptian. And uh, because in my ethnic studies classes, the students have to do a little 10 minute presentation about the themes that they talked about in their papers and their big takeaways. And one young woman, since we don't talk about Middle Eastern culture, we really do focus on the black, African-American, Latino, Chicano, Asian, Asian American, and the Native American population. Those are the four core groups that ethnic studies focuses on. Uh, she's from Egypt. And so she talked about how hearing the students speak about language as something that allows them to access the culture or people use to keep them from accessing the culture. She could relate to that because the Arabic that she speaks, it's not like standard Arabic. Arabic is different based on the country. So there's Egyptian Arabic and there's Saudi Arabic and there's Iraqi Arabic. And so she, she says she can hear it and understand. She can't write it at all. She can kind of speak it. And so, she, so the themes, although we're focusing on these four populations, other students, especially when we talk about language, can absolutely relate to who they, you know, their own personal experiences of, you know, their development as people and as cult people embracing the different aspects of their culture. And so that really brings, um, you know, that spurs a research project that I, I have that focuses on the black identity and, and how it's impacted while the student is engaging in learning Spanish. And so both those of us that come from the culture and those that are visitors to the culture by using the language to, as, that, as that bridge, as that gate to the, language, to the culture and seeing how it impacts who they're becoming as multilingual people because multilingualism is a present reality and part of the identity of people on the continent right now.
it's just here in the United States when you see a black person, also known as an African American, the only expectation is that they speak English. So both that that legacy of multilingualism has been severed, and it's been that severing has been maintained. And I want to see those students who engage in Spanish language in the seventh grade and beyond. It's usually here in California when two students have access to a second language instruction is in junior high, how it starts to change them. And you know, what efforts did it take for them to enroll in a class? Because I've read studies where students are not uh, allowed to take a second language or a foreign language because it, the presumption is that because they speak African-American vernacular English, that they're not doing well in their English classes. Despite their GPA, that shows they are doing well in those classes. And so there is this bit of a gatekeeping function that the school school advisors have that prevent students from black students from accessing second language or foreign language instruction. So I want to see those who are able to sort of make that leap into uh, just in looking at Spanish, because then I can kind of have have them create an environment where the students can practice it if they want. Uh, looking at how they engage with Spanish and how it's changing who they who they're becoming and how they see themselves. Um, so that's a little, it's a pet project I hope to bring to light relatively soon, uh, but it really is a, and I, language is so tied to how we see ourselves and how we define who we are. Um, and I, I wanna explore that in the black, the black community. So as the diaspora, I think that's a really, you know, that was all a really great way to look at language and the way that language kind of manifests and the way that we all, yeah, like you said, it's tied to our identity. Um, so looking, you know, at yourself as, a, as an educator and as, um, in this case, doing research. So you have a philosophy, uh, the process of becoming educated is more profound, is a more profound and soul-shifting soul experience than can be reflected on a piece of paper. It is more than just going to school to learn for the sake of learning. It is more than going to school to secure better employment. It is the process of knowing the process of education and that results in transformation. Yeah. <laughs> and then so why why would you say that you place such a high value on education well because it's such a intentional learning experience that experts have put together based on human learning theory human development theory uh, that's tied into the expect the social expectations of what an educated citizen is supposed to be, all of those things really prove to be a good place for acculturation, more than assimilation. Assimilation was what was done in the 20th century, primarily the first to middle half, uh, middle two thirds of the 20th century. That's how education was seen as in a good vehicle for assimilating all of these foreigners. And it became very quickly something more something, a, pla a place where we can, it can be symbiotic. Yes, you know, we can learn, we can all learn English as a transactional language, a language that allows us to communicate and get by, not, a not be a replacement for our heritage language, which ties us to that reservoir of cultural memory and all the stuff that makes us who we are and the, the funny things that family says and all that kind of stuff. But English as a transactional language is an important piece of information to, to master. And so schools should, you know, that should be one of their goals. But the other one is to help the student sort of 
figure out who they are now that they are not from where their family was from anymore. They're a representative of that culture now within the American populace. And school allows that, should allow for that reflective transformational process. And again, I've been really fortunate that the majority of my teachers, uh, because most you know, human beings are imperfect. And so we all go into our professional endeavors and personal endeavors with that imperfection. And the outcomes are imperfect. You know, we try our best, but sometimes, you know, we're kind of, and we we're sometimes we're not even aware that, that we're sort of creating things that are so imperfect that they're damaging to other people. Uh, but I've come across some pretty darn good teachers that really saw me and saw their role as to help me become. And um, that's why, I, because of my own personal experience, I have experienced the transformational power of education. And I try to make that clear to my students that you can't leave your four-year college education thinking and behaving like you were still in junior high. That is, a, that is completely unacceptable. That means that you haven't put in the work to own the learning, to own the insight, and to get informed opinions about some really important stuff. So. That's my spiel. I'm off my, <laughs> my soapbox. <laughs> but I'm a huge proponent of education. I'm a huge defender. And that's why I'm so, so uh, I really check those who want to enter this space, especially K-6 teachers, because if I didn't have the teachers that I had, I am 100% sure I wouldn't be here. I really wouldn't. No, I, it's because of professors with the mindset and like professors and just like teachers I've had in my years of education, like you and Barbara that put up, put in so much time into their students and like so much focus and so much encouragement that like, it makes me want to also be like a teacher, a professor. Like I want to have that kind of influence into like, like I want other younger generations to be like, oh, this is what all these things mean. This is what I can do here's the best, like, here's a way I can execute it. Um, and for me personally, higher education and has taught me like an in-depth history lesson, like on Afro-Latinidad and like my Afro-Latinx roots and like how deep and like true that they are and like where it comes from, how all of this has affected me in the long run. Um, in your opinion, how can we as a community better spread this information and to further like educate our people, educate other people? Like what, in your opinion, would be the best way to navigate through this? I think it's important to engage with the African-American community because many of us hide in there because we have so we get so much pushback from the Latino community. So it's like, you know, OK, fine. Yes, I'm black. So I'll just affiliate with the African-Americans and I'm just a black person who speaks Spanish. And so there's a, there's a splitting of and compartmentalizing of our identities when that happens. And so I think as Afro-Latinos, we can speak, you know, how we're working to integrate ourselves, um, our varying degrees of mastery of the language and how we feel about that. Because for me and my family, it was a priority. And it isn't in others, and it doesn't have to be. That's just what we chose to do. And so being honest in that process and um, 
that, you know, whatever your, your mastery of the, of the language is saying, you know, and this is where I'm at in mine. And this is why, because you know, as you shared um, of how your relationship with your, with your mother was that you, know, you were the English model and she turned out to be the Spanish model for you. And so you understand each other. And that happens a lot in families where the child goes out into the world in this English speaking world. Um, and the Spanish speaking parent or grandparent is at home and you know, watching and listening to Spanish language television and radio and engaging in, in the Spanish language with family and friends. Uh, and so they're maintaining that. And so they, uh, but they understand English, but they can't speak it. But you understand Spanish, but you're, you've lost the practice, right? And so we can, and that's, that's really a reflection of a lot of students. And so just saying that out loud tells the students like, yeah, my family's like that too. And if my, if, if Professor Casillas is like that and she's okay and they're okay with themselves, then I should be too. It's like, yeah, baby, you should, right? <laughs> so you're sort of modeling a different way of being okay with who you are and what you have to offer and what was, what was given to you and what you picked up. Uh, and it really does make a huge difference just being in that, that space. But realizing that there are a lot of, there's, there's black students who are Afro-Latinos who really don't feel very welcome in the Latino community and to, to say, you know, I'm here whenever you're ready and have them um, realize that they could live in both worlds. They don't have to choose. Uh, and that's the beauty of our identity that, you know, we are part of the black diaspora and part of a, a very rich culture as well. And, and that's how we, that's how, this is how we're black and they're black a different way. And there are Blacks that grew up in Japan. And there, there are Blacks that, that live in Europe uh, that are, you know, you hear stories of you know, the Black community now finding a voice in Scotland. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to be Black. And this is just how we are. And they, and it gives them permission to start exploring that aspect of who they are uh, that um, they've had to set aside because the Latino community has been such a, for the most part, a negative experience for them. That's one thing that I think as a professor or a teacher, uh, we can do is just creating a place where they can come and discover all of who they are whenever at the pace that they're comfortable doing it in too. You know, I don't want to drag anybody kicking and screaming, guilting somebody that you know, they don't know enough Spanish. It's like, what? You know, you should be ashamed. Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Never ever do that. But students have had that experience with some of their professors. And I think as Afro-Latinos, we have a unique sensitivity that we can bring into the, into the classroom and the learning experience and engagement with our students. So. I like what you had said about existing as both and being able to be both and discovering that because you said, you mentioned that a lot of Black um, students, or in this case, students, Black students don't know that they may be Afro-Latino. And I know in my case, it wasn't until I took Barbara's class, I think, I don't know, it was, it was, it was a few years ago. It was, I mean, it was in college. It was the first time I'd even thought about Afro-Latinos at all. Like I really wasn't even aware that that was something you could identify as, that that was even <laughs> right. a group of people. And I was, what well, I was, I think I was 20 maybe. Mm -hmm. So 20 years later in my life, it wasn't until then. So I think, you know, giving students the time and giving them 
your effort as an educator and giving them the space to do. I think that's, I think that's really awesome. And so looking more at ethnic studies. So 53 years ago, the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University was established in the fall of 1969. And it was the first program of its kind in the US. Uh, many of the founders of the college played pivotal roles in the 1968 campus-wide protest and strike in which courageous students and faculty and community members demanded that institutionalized inequities at the university be reversed and addressed. And so, and that's again, something that I didn't know until I got to SF State or even the, the whole idea of a college of ethnic studies wasn't something I learned until I got here and that SF State was the first, and it was only 53 years ago. That's not that long ago. That's, you know, that's, I, I, I guess it's not surprising that it was only 53 years ago, but putting it into context of thinking, because 2022 seems a, a far ways away from 1969, but 53 years is not a lot of time. So, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky to be able to be in the ethnic studies department. And so how would you uh, define ethnic studies? And then when did your interest begin in ethnic studies? Oh, it's wonderful to, to know. I knew that ethnic studies began in Northern California. I wasn't, I wasn't aware that it was San Francisco State and I wasn't aware that it was my birth year. 1969 was a really great year. I just want to say that right there. <laughs> just putting that out there. <laughs> um, but I, having taught one section in the fall at Cal State Fullerton, and now having taught four sections in the spring, uh, and we'll be teaching five sections in the fall and then three in the following spring, I think I'm starting to really get a sense of how consequential the material is and how I engage with it myself and how important it is to get it right. And I tell my students that I, I actually re release the calendar in four week blocks. They get a general idea of what we'll be covering, but the, the substance and the readings and the, you know, like videos and podcasts, I do it in four week blocks because I need to get capture, especially in the podcasts and the videos, the most recent happenings to make it absolutely relevant in the moment to their lives so that they don't think that this is just like a history class and they're just, just going to go in one ear and out the other. And it's like, you know, what am I supposed to do with this ancient history stuff? It's like, it's not, look what happened yesterday, right? <laughs> that you could use your knowledge in this classroom to help interpret and act on. Um, and I think for me, it is, it's like all educational endeavors. It's a vehicle for self-discovery. Who, what you think is important, who you are as a person, how you view the world, what protocols or ways of organizing information or filters do you use to discern fact from fiction? Uh, all of these things are what education your classes are doing. And so I try to tell my students, like, you know, with algebra and you know, you're solving for X, that's similar to English where you're doing contextual analysis. Do you see the connections, you know, and helping them understand that you know, you're getting a way, different ways of organizing disparate pieces of information. That's what math helps you do. So I go in my, my whole math field because I love math. I've had all great math teachers. And so when going back to ethnic studies, I said, it's the same. It gives you frameworks and ways of understanding the world and questions and spaces for you to learn. And it's got a reflective component that it helps you learn about yourself. And I really emphasize also the white students understand that 
when you say you're white, you're identifying yourself as part of a diaspora. That's, yeah. So you're, oh, you know, I, what I lovingly call domestic, African, uh, you know, European-American white people, white Americans. But there are whites that are part of the white diaspora from the Netherlands, from Germany, from South Africa, or, you know, from Greece, from Argentina, just saying. You know, there's, so there's a white diaspora. And you fit, in my informed opinion, in this space. But that means, that means that you came from somewhere else. Your people came from somewhere else. So use that as a vehicle for exploration. Just to say, well, you know, I'm a Heinz 57, yada, yada, yada. But I don't want to own anything that has to do with slavery and the, and the economic system that was built upon it, owning and selling human beings is kind of, you know, saying, you know, speaking out of two sides of your mouth. So you're, for whites, there is a history, that, a trajectory that takes them through that period in U.S. history, but also bounces them to the northern, to the European continent. And they have to understand that history in order for them to feel really capable enough <clears throat> to engage in conversation with students who, who have a more recent connection to another place. And that's oftentimes why white students just sort of sit back and like, well, I don't know. It's like, because you've never been asked to look and I'm asking you to look. And so <clears throat> that is um, how ethnic studies really uh, can be, have a profound impact. And almost without exception during these presentations that started the last two weeks and will end next week during finals week, every student said, this needs to be in the K-12 curriculum. I am so upset that I had to, now that they're graduating, it's a graduation requirement. A lot of students are like, I'm taking this class because it's a graduation requirement and it, I had to fit in it. Fine. I don't care how you got here. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I should have learned this in high school or I should have learned this in junior high school. I had one student, uh, one white male student tell me, you know, I said some really stupid things. And if, I, if this class would have been in junior high, it would have kept me from being such a jerk. And I would have been, a better friend. I mean, the students just need to know. They, we need to help them understand and then they, they'll get it. Um, but they, at this point, they have to wait until they're in college, the four year. It's a mandated graduation requirement in the CSUs. The UCs have also made it a, gra a graduation requirement. <clears throat> Some private institutions have added it, um, but it's more voluntary than the state institutions. Um, and then in California, it becomes a requirement of a, as a course offering starting academic year 2025-26. And then it becomes a graduation requirement for those graduating in 2029. So those entering that 2025-26 that year, the course offerings have to be there because those students now have a graduation requirement four years later in high school to have to take one semester at least. So that's where we're at in California. Uh, but all the students is like, screw 2025. This should be in junior high school. This should be in the K-12. This should be in kindergarten. <clears throat> and um, there are a lot of places in California that have already made ethnic studies a graduation requirement uh, before the state mandate. And so there are some students that are already well-versed. I've had a handful, maybe three across the four sections that have taken an ethnic studies class in high school. Um, a couple of them were from Northern California. 
and it's probably because of the influence of uh, San Francisco State and the Ethnic Studies Program, creating this pipeline of educators and influencing the school districts around it. You have an informed pool of expertise that helps create, helps districts create these classes. Well, not so much here in Southern California. We're building that up with different you know, ethnic studies programs coming online in Southern California. So. Dr. Marie, you hold a master's degree in counseling with an emphasis on student development in higher education. What's your view on the importance such emphasis of education or lack of it in the Latinx community? I, uh, I am forever blessed and thankful that I have this counseling degree. It's a student development in higher education. So it's a counseling degree that informs the psychosocial learning of students. So the out-of-class learning, the things that may impact your in-class progress to graduation, their success in the classroom, the stuff outside of it. I help you make sense of it, use some counsel, brief counseling strategies. Um, it's not a licensure, so I do have limits to what I can help you do, but um, working with at least the acknowledgement of these issues, bringing in the resources, and then helping you sort of organize all of that into a successful plan to get you to graduation. Um, I use those skills to guide conversations in class, to remind all students that education is a priority in all communities, including the Latino community. It is a priority and they need to, whatever they hear, whether it be from family or close friends, because I've had students tell me that they've been questioned, it's like, why are you even going to college? You're just gonna move back home or, what are you going to do with this degree? Are you just going to stay in school? You need to get a job. This, this and that. They're getting signals that education isn't necessarily a priority for the family and community right immediately around them. And I remind them that a college degree is as essential to you as a high school diploma was to your grandparents. There is no way around it anymore. Even students that are going into sort of some sort of what's considered a trade, will hit a ceiling. Um, even they will require at least a two-year education because a high school diploma and a certificate won't be enough. They need the skills that a two-year degree will give them to continue on the trajectory because if not, they will hit a ceiling and the lack of education will be used against them to, for promotions. So the opportunity that a post-secondary educational degree provides is no longer an option. And so I, I try to remind them of that, have help them understand that if they are first in their family or even their close community to be here in my classroom, they need to then be the resource. They have now the carriers of that additional cultural capital that they need to bring back to the community and share. That's now their obligation. And uh, I try not to lecture too much, but sometimes I feel like, yo soy la tía, que, nadie, que no le hablan así. <laughs> so I try not to do that too often, but sometimes it's like, okay, look, guys, here's the deal. <laughs> Dr. Marie, you did research on Afroboricua women in education. Can you tell us about your findings on that research? Um, there was, hair was a big deal. Like my hair right now that you see in the in the Zoom, está planchada. This is, and I have come to embrace this as one way of doing my hair. 
the other way, when I just come out of the shower, kind of looks like yours, brother. And that's another option. Uh, the fact that the Crown Act needed to be put into legislation in the state of California and I think 19 other states to protect the way my hair grows out of my head and for many people, but mostly people of, of African descent, for their hair to not be used as a reason to fire you, to let, go, let you go. That needed legal protection tells you that we've been dealing with a lot of things. And the Afro-Boricos that, that were part of my study noticed that depending on the condition of their hair, there was some, there was an ease or a resistance to accessing our, the, the culture. There were times, there was one who has hair and then she would flat iron it and it would be like twice as long. And she would put her shades on and people she knows, people she would work with would walk right past her. It's like it created this cloak of invisibility, our hair did, when we changed how it was. And, it, and we all spoke about that uh, it created this, it put us in this space where people couldn't easily place us. Uh, tag us or peg us or you know frame us in some way we were in this space I guess space of ambiguity um, a liminal space if you're looking you're speaking using the word from the arts or that space called nepantla that um, Ansaldua talks about where you're in this in-between space that creates a space where you can rest but also that a space where you can define yourself before you go out and the world starts defining you. And hair did that for us. Another one was self-advocacy, where we were in, we created spaces where people who couldn't find a place to belong, belonged with us. Okay? So we did, a lot of us were in student affairs or student, some sort of student club if we were students. Um, and it was a club that was very multicultural in that sense, where people just came uh, because they didn't quite fit anywhere else. And we supported them and we gave them resources and we sort of advocated and demonstrated how to, they can self-advocate. Uh, we did that. Uh, that was one find, another finding. Uh, language was uh, another thing we all experienced that language was especially used as a gatekeeping for our cultural litmus test on us almost exclusively uh, without without exception. Uh, and we all felt this desire to maintain our language so that if we're ever called on it, we, could, we can bring it up. And I think that's probably what informs my focus on language in my own personal life, that that was a priority because I have experienced this check on my legitimacy for so long. It's just like, there's no way that I'm going to have my children experience the same thing. And so I maintain, you know, I've, even though I've taken Spanish for native speakers through high school and I, and I took Spanish classes in college, my language of mastery is right around the 10th grade level. Right? So that's where I can function. It's not academic. I, I, it takes a lot of effort for me to write at an academic level. Um, my speaking ability gets to that point and then you know it sort of varies it fluctuates um, my reading ability is very high um, but it's a ch it's a choice that I've I've made to prioritize it because I know it somebody will sometimes use it as a as a 
check on my legitimacy. And, uh, and that's a coping, that's an absolute coping um, mechanism. And so, and it has, and it, that came out in the, in the research. And so those, those are some of the findings. And one thing that really jumped out was during my recruitment, uh, recruiting people who identified as Afro-Boricua was harder than I expected because a lot of people, uh, again, people heard me say Afro-Boricua and they would say, but I'm not black. And it's like, I don't mean that you're African-American. I mean that you're of African descent. It's like, but yo soy Boricua. And so I would fall back into this national identity. Um, and it's at one point I was standing in front of a woman, very, very, very light, light skinned, dark hair. Her husband was very, very black skinned, curly, kinky hair. And at one point she told me in Spanish, tu sabes que hay más que perros y negros que salen de Puerto Rico. And I'm thinking, lady, you're looking right at me and your husband is standing right next to you. And you're saying that, you know, there isn't just, you know, black people and dogs that come out of Puerto Rico. Grouping us together with a lower order animal. And I just thought, well, there's a lot of internal anti-blackness in the language. And she was completely unaware. Um, and uh, so made it difficult for me to recruit. And I, after six months of recruitment in both English and Spanish flyers, online, in person, I had four participants that would come out and speak. So I had to include myself. So it was a bit of a insider outsider um, process for the dissertation. It was really, really difficult to, to recruit. And so that I had to speak about that in my dissertation. And so I wrote that, that particular experience as, as something that is an indication of the anti-Blackness or lack of awareness, because people are always very quick to own the Indigenous, not so quick to own the Blackness. And race and wealth work differently in Puerto Rico. You can be very Black and wealthy and people don't see you as Black because they have an understanding of what Black people are. They could, they could literally assume that you're white, even though your skin is very dark. And so there's that whiteness is mapped onto wealth, regardless of who that, you know, who, who that body looks like. If you're rich, you're white, regardless of what you look like. And, I, and that was an, a really interesting finding that, that I learned that I didn't know before. Uh, the, for you to only have found you know, four women, that's for, it seems like you were doing pretty substantial research. So only four seems, that's, I, yeah, just, I feel like, you know, there would have been more, but I guess, like you said, the, and like we talked about earlier, the difference of, of terms that we use, how putting the Afro in front of something, somebody could assume like African-American, not, not just black, you know, the context is different. I think language in that way is a barrier sometimes. And, uh, you know, the way that we look at it, cause you know, Afro Boricua or, but I'm not black, but well, it's like, that's not what we mean. And it's, I, I can see where maybe I, I'm thinking, I would like to think that perhaps there were more than just four women that you got to, but you know, you never know. Um, and then also I like what you mentioned about hair um, because I think for me, hair has been the biggest way that I've had to dissect my identity or it's been the one Thing because and I've said this before in, in previous episodes that it's the one thing that I could like change and tweak because my skin and 
way that I talk and that my, those weren't, weren't aspects of my identity that I could change and that I couldn't grapple with, but hair was one of them. And having, for our listeners, having, you know, curly hair is something that's really important to my identity as a, as a woman of color. So I think, and the crown act, uh, not many people know even that that was, um, that that's legislature and that it's, and how important, cause it's hair that grows out of our heads. We can't really do much about that. It's really, that's, we don't have much choice. So I think bringing, bringing that to the forefront, forefront is really important and back on you, the different, uh, theories. So there's a uh, backlash in 37 states against um, critical race theory. So what are your thoughts on critical race theory and, and, and the backlash that it's receiving? Um, I actually uh, talked to the students about, uh, about this and I expressly tell them that this is uh, something that's spoken about in, in, le- in legal frameworks because it fills this gap of, you know, of where an individual like who's a black woman, for instance, cannot get legal redress if this person claims um, harm, legal harm, because of how those two identities intersect. That intersectionality is how critical race works in the legal sense. It's a framework. It's kind of like if you don't understand what's happening and people say, follow the money, that's an economic framework to sort of bring to light or it's kind of like putting on a, a pair, of, pair of glasses and you see some stuff pops out of the, of, the, of the page. Critical race is the same. If you're having difficulty understanding or you want to see what else is going on, you put that framework on and see what pops up because that framework has been validated and informed by statistical analysis and lived experiences and peer review. So it's a legitimate framework to use to see what else pops up. That is the beginning and the end <laughs> what critical race is. And for people to sort of twist it into, we're making minorities feel bad about themselves and white people feel guilty about themselves. It's like, it has nothing to do with anything except looking using this framework to see when we're looking at environmental who which populations are being impacted by environmental um, degradation or pollution for instance let's use critical race as a framework to see what pops up ah lo and behold black and brown communities are right up against or on top of waste sites and um, factories and all of that. So it provides us with an opportunity to explore health out- outcomes and opportunities. And like, for instance, this unfortunate shooting that happened in Buffalo, New York. This young person shows up in tactical gear to a predominantly Black community at their grocery store and kills Black people with the with previous actions that that he believes that you know black and brown people are out to do whatever to the white community. I don't want to give too much credence to that. But then there was a very interesting conversation that came up. That grocery store was the only one within a certain per- perimeter. It was a food desert. And food deserts can be examined by using critical race. 
So it's a framework and that's um, how people get all twisted about in other ways. It's something else is going on. And quite frankly, that needs to be dealt with with their therapist. It it should not be something that they use to uh, to sort of to arrange legislation because it's a personal it's a personal issue that you still need to sort out before you can come to the conversation and see what other people see. I completely agree. A lot of the issues that people have with critical race theory is just like, excuse my language, but it's shit they got to deal with on their own. And they just got to figure it out because seeing things in a different lens won't hurt you. It won't hurt anyone. It's simply there to just give you a different insight on an issue that we all know about, that we all talk about. It's just another way to look at it. Um, 100%. In summary, um, why do you think ethnic studies is such, it's so important in today's education? I know you hinted at it earlier and you talked about it briefly, but just like overall, why do you think it's important in today's education? Uh, The insights you gain through ethnic studies about, you know, your, the, yourself and the other, uh, because there's, there is that experience of you learn about other people in while at the same time you're learning about yourself so that you understand the differences and then you understand where the overlaps are. Uh, that level of insight is an absolute requirement to thrive in the 21st century, period. Uh, for me, another thing that is a a skill that is a requirement for the 21st century is multilingualism. Whenever you pick it up, you have to pick it up because not only is there material outcomes to both having that insight through ethnic studies, but also through uh, having one or more other languages uh, as part of how you interact and see the world and understand the world, there's material outcomes. I mean, bonuses. In the six figures for for having that level of insight and expertise in being able to interact with other people. Opportunities, like if your employer is looking for somebody to move to Germany and you're going to get double your salary because they're thinking nobody's going to go. And you go, oh, I, I, I speak German. I'll go. It's like, look at that. Double your salary right there. So that the insight of you, you know you, who you are as a person and how you how you're how you use that to then understand other people is a skill that is going to be if it isn't already a requirement because those who were brought up in the 20th century who are the ones that are the CEOs in these large corporations they're eventually going to die bottom line some of these folks uh, for college age folks that are in their you know 19 to 22, 24 years old, those folks are like 50 years older than you. They're, so who's going to fill those spaces? It's a reflection of the growth and insights of the next generation. And as the world is intentionally getting smaller and our ability to interact and our interconnectedness is becoming more and more clear and our ability to relate in order to, you know, de-escalate conflicts, you know, it isn't no, it's no longer the work of diplomats. It really is the work of everyone to be able to relate at that level. It's a requirement, you know, that 
ethnic studies and having a, uh, some sort of a multilingual understanding. And I include sign language in that as well, because the sign community, the gestured languages that are also multilingual, you know, <laughs> their gestured language in Brazil is different from gestured language in France to different how it's done here in the United States. That is a form of multi, and it gives you access to another community and sensitivity towards people who see and literally hear the world differently than you. And that makes you grow as a person and really makes you a valuable member of any organization. And I, I tell you know, the students, it's like, I know it's an issue of trust. You have to trust that I'm right. <laughs> I, because for many of you, I'm about maybe 25, 30 years older than you, maybe. So you have to trust me. Do the education abroad. Thankfully, you're in my class. If you have another language, just a heritage language, work on, uh, on mastering it as best as you can, whatever that language is, whether it be Tagalog or uh, Egyptian Arabic or Urdu or whatever it is, it's part of your heritage. So claim it and realize that it's actually going to have a material benefit to you in the future. So it's kind of like a win-win-win, right? <laughs> so that's how I, I, I frame it as a 21st century skill that's really tied to multilingualism uh, and that they have access to it and they have time. Not a lot because, you know, anything can happen, um, but they have time if they're purposeful to do this and really set themselves up to succeed in the future. Thank you so much for this great conversation on Tangling Ethnic Studies. Dr. Marinubia Feliciano. For more information about Dr. Marinubia Feliciano, visit marinubiafeliciano.com. We want to thank the Community University Empowerment Grant, the Cesar E. Chavez Institute, the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University, Acción Latina, and the wonderful team of El Tecolote for making this pilot project possible. Thanks for listening to Afro-Latinx Soundscapes. Thank you, Naya. Thank you, Jazz. Thank you, Dr. Feliciano. Thank you to everybody. Thank you for having me.